Hi, I'm Daryl Urbanski, and welcome to the Best Business Podcast. My mission is to help create 200 new multimillionaire business owners. How? You'll do better when you know better. In my interviews, you'll hear from self-made millionaires, seven-figure business owners, authors, and world-class experts sharing how they did it so you can too without experiencing the same obstacles they did. Now, if you like this interview, please share it with a friend you think will benefit. They'll appreciate it, and I will as well. You can also connect with me on social media. Look for Daryl Urbanski, D-A-R-Y-L, Urban Ski, U-R-B-A-N-S-K-I, and add me so we can be friends. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy what I've prepared for you right here, right now. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us. My name is Daryl Urbanski, your host as always, and today we are joined by a very special guest, Roland Frazier. He started out selling real estate when he was 18 and gradually got his real estate, insurance, and securities licenses while he did leveraged buyouts with Prudential Securities during college and law school. After law school, Roland opened his own law practice and grew it to one of the top firms in San Diego, serving entrepreneurs, business owners, marketing, and entertainment industry clients. During that time, Roland began doing joint venture deals with clients and gradually evolved from practicing law to buying and selling companies, repositioning businesses, and direct response marketing. Over his career, Roland has done infomercial deals with Guthy Ranker and KTEL Direct, publishing deals with Simon & Schuster and Random House, negotiated shows with major hotels on the Las Vegas Strip, been involved in over 100 private and public offerings, run international hedge funds, worked with copywriting legend Gary Halbert, created presentations and marketing campaigns for major brands, and much, much more. He's now a principal, an idea incubator, and digital marketer, working closely with Ryan Dice, Frank Kern, Perry Belcher, Kent Clothier, and many other digital marketing thought leaders. In fact, for a while, I was personally in the War Room Mastermind run by himself, Ryan and Perry. Roland has a real passion for businesses and putting deals together. He is always on the lookout for businesses to buy, reposition, and sell. And I've asked him to join us here today to share his wisdom and strategies for business growth. So Roland, thank you so much for your time. How are you doing, my friend? It's my pleasure. Boy, that guy sounds like he's just a bragger to me. Right? I know. What's up with this guy? He needs to take a day off. You got him all. What the heck? I'm kidding, of course. Stay on that ground. Well, I'm doing well. I understand. I understand that you are now the world champion CrossFit guy after the workout you just did. So, uh, if if you sound out of breath or heavy breathing, I won't think you're trying to be romantic. I'll think you're just tired. That's right. Yeah. It's, yeah. For people that follow, they know I'm a fan of CrossFit. I just did the last of the five workouts, and it was brutal. Just to give you some perspective, um, there's a benchmark workout called Fran. It's 21, 15, nine reps of what they call a thruster and then a pull up. And this one was 20. 21, 18, 15, 12, 9, 6, three reps of thrusters and burpees. And so it was just a nightmare. It was just terrible. So anyways, but yes, so I'm, I'm here though. I'm happy. I'm excited. I'm really grateful to be able to talk to you. So one of the things I wanted to ask about is how did you, like why real estate in the beginning? Do you come from a long line of entrepreneurs? Is real estate in the family business? Can you speak to that a little bit? Um, my, you know, my dad did a bunch of uh, a bunch of real estate deals. Uh, I just saw my father was a tax attorney, and uh, he did a lot of investing in deals that people would find, and it just seemed interesting and uh, like a way that you could you could earn a lot of money pretty fast. And mm-hmm. so when I was uh, when I was younger, I was like, hey, that that seems like uh, seems like a good way to go. So I I went and got my license when I was eighteen. And, Figured that was as good a place to start as any. Got it. Now, this is a little bit off track, but I, I'm actually very curious because I asked this before. So there are many facets in business, and we talk a lot about the marketing and a lot about partnerships and other stuff. But it's funny because when I was reading your bio and, and just getting to know you a bit better, um, law, I remember once upon a time a mentor of mine said if I wanted to learn business law, I should study real estate law. And I just wanted to ask you your opinion on that. Is that true? Is is real estate a good avenue if you're a business owner trying to figure out the ins and outs of like the legal landscape? Or is that misleading? Or what are your thoughts? I, I would disagree. I, I think, I mean, there are a lot of real estate deals that are kind of businessy, but the, the body of law that's real estate compared to the body of law that is, uh, is related to business is pretty different. So okay. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't think that that would, uh, 
that would be as helpful as you might think. Okay. So what are some of the big areas that a business owner has to be aware of, especially kind of a smaller operation? I mean, I think once you get to 25, 50, maybe I'm very wrong, but 25, 50 plus employees, you start building the infrastructure that you would have someone who specializes in that on staff. But if you're before that, or you're a very flat company where you outsource a lot, are there anything that you really have to be wary of? It's just something that came up because of your law background that I was like, wow, I'd be really good to ask him about this. Yeah, I think the I think the things to think about the, the biggest thing is whatever intellectual property you're having created. So if you're outsourcing your logos, if you are you know going to 99 designs and having that done, or hiring a graphic designer to do that, or your packaging or your branding, um, all of those things that are being created by other people. The biggest thing I would say is you actually have to have a written agreement that says that it's a work made for hire specifically and that you are the owner of that intellectual property. Otherwise, the person that reduces it is a tangible form, meaning even if you're standing there saying, change that to green and use a, you know, a uh, sans serif font and make it 48 points and, you know, shade this and that kind of stuff, it's still not yours if you're not the person that's actually taking it from the idea into the actual existence. So, uh, and I, I can tell you, even really big companies, when I was practicing law, uh, one of our one of our larger cases involved a huge public company that had just acquired another company for uh, I think it was seven hundred million dollars, and it turned out that that uh, our client had drawn the logo for this company, and our client had licensed it to them, but because he retained the ownership, when the license expired, they weren't able to use it anymore. And uh, and they ended up it ended up costing them a lot of money. Um, uh, it ended up costing them mid eight figures just to acquire the logo for their stuff that they had had someone else design because they didn't get it documented right in the first place. So you know it's not just small businesses that need to think about it. It's, it's large ones too. Wow. That's probably the single most important thing. And then there are certain statutes that say. If you say, for example, that all of your employees' uh, inventions and improvements and intellectual property is owned by you, which is smart to say, um, there are in some states like California specific labor code sections that say you need to exclude certain things like when they're doing it on their own time with their own money, not related to the employment. And if you don't, then all of the agreement can be held invalid and all of the improvements they made to your stuff can end up belonging to somebody else instead of you. Those are probably the two biggest areas I'd say I see people making a mistake with in the you know in the legal side of small, that's small a, business. No, but that's a great tip. I mean, it's much more than just your NDA or non-disclose. It sounds like this is, again, like you said, even just have it specifically say that you're doing it for hire or with employees stating that everything that they're creating is owned by the company. That's a huge tip. It's not a difficult thing, it sounds like, to implement, but it has huge ramifications, right? Um, it's one of those things like you never appreciate the time you turn left instead of right and, you know, didn't get hit by a car. So it's like a right. small thing you can just start including in your regular day-to-day business that could really save you some headaches down the road. Um, yeah, and then and then how you plan, I think, is really important, too, because if, you, um, if you're operating a company that has potential liability, like let's say that you're operating a company that manufactures motorcycle helmets or knives or anything that people could potentially hurt themselves with, which is people are shockingly good at hurting themselves with things. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, they generally don't want to be considered responsible for anything they do themselves. So what happens is you'll, you'll sometimes see a company that gets into a lot of trouble because there'll be a class action lawsuit or a huge personal injury action or something like that. And if you take your intellectual property, like your most valuable thing is usually your brand. And so if you take your brands and your trademarks and you've protected them and then you put them in a different company and have the different company own them and license them to the operating company that is manufacturing or selling them, which is where the liability is, then you can basically get into a situation if something catastrophic happens where you can terminate the license agreement, uh, let that other company go bankrupt, you know, and obviously all, all of its assets and receivables sales and stuff would go to satisfy the claim, but you wouldn't lose control of the brand or the real value 
the long-term value resides. Mm -hmm. So that's another another good thing to do is to have at least two entities where one is licensing the brand to the other, and um, you get uh, a little bit of flexibility there in the event of liability. Got it. That's really, yes, because layering for protection is super important. And this is, again, this is stuff often people don't think about until it's too late. Now, how do you learn that sort of stuff? Were there like any challenge, like big challenges or milestones that you've kind of, you looking back, you see that you, like these thresholds you pass through in your career, like, oh, and I figured this out about business and oh, and then I figured that out. Was there like a progression with big chat, like big steps or milestones that you crossed? That's a really good question. I, uh, you know, it, it seems like it's kind of the boiled frog uh, way of learning that you <laughs> you learn incrementally as you go along without realizing you did, and then all of a sudden you uh, turns out you know a lot of stuff. Right, right. <laughs> but but uh, as far as on on the stuff that I just mentioned, um, it was basically practicing law and seeing it with clients, and then um, I ended up owning a motorcycle helmet company <laughs> with somebody, and we uh, we actually. Uh, for liability purposes, structured it as I said, and it turned out that when we sold it, we sold it to a big private equity firm. And when they uh, when they bought it, they did not buy the company that owned the intellectual property. So we got basically paid for that. And now they had a license to use the mark, so you know we weren't trying to pull the wool over their eyes or anything. And they knew that the property was owned by something else. But then when they they went to sell it to an even bigger company, the bigger company was like, "Well, wait a minute, we want to own everything." And they were like, "Oh, well, we don't own the we don't own those trademarks." And uh, that company said, "Well, you need to own them, or we're not going to buy you." So then they had to come back and buy us out of that. So we kind of got two buyouts for the price of one, which was pretty cool. That is but cool. I learned that basically indirectly. That was kind of a cool thing uh, uh, to know, you know from that purpose. The Intellectual property stuff, you know, I learned through litigation from the clients that I had mm. when I was practicing law. Mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. Yeah, that's. Huge. I will tell you. A, yep. I'll tell you a big thing to me though that uh, that I I have learned over time is I love 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 to negotiate, and I really enjoy putting deals together. And uh, a younger version of me was much more aggressive in going after the best deal I could get. And the current version of me is much more about being sure that even if someone will agree to something that um, that's not that great for them or that's a super good deal for you, um, it's a bad idea to let them do that. So mm-hmm. I am an advocate not only for myself, but you know I want to get a good deal, but I, I want to get something within the zone of fairness that I know – they are not agreeing to something that that they really shouldn't be because if they do, they'll find all kinds of ways to justify either um, not delivering or delivering poorly or even kind of screwing you over. And so you're just better off to to get get a good deal, but don't get the best deal right. because you want them to be really happy. And I'll actually ask. I've I've turned down amazingly good deals to buy companies or do licenses and stuff like that. Um, where I ask the other person, even actually, even if I'm buying something on eBay, I'll just say, "Are you happy with this?" And I say, "Nah, I'm really not. I want. I thought I could get this." And I'll say, "Okay, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it because I'm not going to do it unless you're happy with it." Mm. And uh, it surprises the heck out of people when you say that. But I tell you what, it just saves you all kinds of hassles. The more you can stay away from having to do any kind of litigation or see any kind of attorneys, the better off you are, and the the happier the other side is with the deals that you're doing with them, mm-hmm. the the less likely that you'll end up having to fight with them later on. Right. Yeah, it almost sounds like more of a bit of an old school approach where deals were, you know, so uh, done over a handshake, so to speak, where, you know, kind of like, you're, you know, you're looking out for your own, but at the same time, you're not trying to, you're not trying to gut the other guy, it sounds like. Because if you put someone in a desperate situation and they don't even realize what they did, right, and it could be for a number of reasons why they're not paying attention, like you said, once they sign that paper, they, they might, it just could be, turn into a headache for you. So that's a, exactly. really good, that's a really good tip. And it's just good business practice. I mean, if you're trying to build a long-term sustainable business, you're not really going to, and I guess that's why you're more like that, right? Like it's just not a sustainable thing. Um, and you mentioned earlier how brand is your most valuable thing, your most important thing, and you just don't want to leave a bloody trail behind you, right? That's not going to be good for the brand. So. <laughs> you really don't. <laughs> yeah. So, so now um, 
what would you recommend to people who are starting out and maybe struggling? They're kind of trying to find their way in their business. And because and I'm coming from the perspective of someone who likes to buy and sell and reposition businesses. What are the key things you look for in a business? What are the key leverage points? Um, where sh- where's the 80-20? If you're looking for looking for a business to buy? Well, I'm sad as a perspective of someone buying and selling it. I guess I, it was more of a question to help someone who might be struggling or just starting out. And it was as someone who's looking to buy and sell businesses, you're looking for key things in place. And then you like to reposition them. So I was like, so what are the key leverage points? Because I feel like when you reposition, it's because you've got a business that's up and running and doing okay, but they're not really doing these three things really well, if that makes sense. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Yeah. The, I, I would say that the very first thing that I would say is whatever you don't like to do, you will ultimately not do well or you will not do, and it will hurt your business. So I am a huge, huge, huge advocate of getting partners who like to do the things that you don't like or want to do. And um, so, for example, if if you're good at networking and forming relationships and things like that, but you really don't like to have to show up for webinars and be the face of the business and stuff like that, then I suggest that you partner with somebody that really enjoys doing that because you won't do it enough. You, you'll hate doing it. You will not like doing it. You won't do it enough and your business will suffer. So if you can get the person who's good at the thing that you're not, I think that that's really great. And I think not enough people partner. You have to partner wisely because bad partnerships are, are truly awful. But if there's somebody that you like, and you uh, you work out who's going to do what. It, it's just such a great way to do it. And that's that's if you don't have enough money, you know, partner with somebody that's got money to capitalize. If you've got, uh, if you're not good at traffic, uh, but you're good at content, or you're not good at marketing, but you're good at content, then part, partner with a good marketer, or vice versa. It's just so much more pleasant to have your life be structured around doing the things you like to do and not the things you don't. I'd say that's the the biggest one, and that solves all kinds of problems. It solves having to come up with money for capital. It come, it, uh, if you mm-hmm. needed to come up with money to pay staff, having somebody that's a partner to do that and having a little bit smaller piece of a bigger pie, I just I can't think of a better way to go. Mm-hmm. In terms of leveraging the business, the thing that uh, the thing that I would say I, I can tell you when you look to acquire a business or if you have a business that's looking to be acquired, then people are going to look for a lot of things. They're going to look for, um, they're going to look for triple digit year over year growth. And that, so it's easy to go from a thousand dollars to $2,000 to $4,000 to $8,000. It's not so easy to go from, you know, 400,000 to 800,000 to a million six, you know, three, two. So I, I think that's something that, that you want to try to figure out how to make happen and partnering and strategic relationships are a great way to do that. The, the other things that, that really make sense are, uh, are that people are looking for our bench strength. They look for management. That's, that's not just one person. So that if something happens to that person, the business can go on. They're looking for businesses that, um, that have uh, shown a profit consistently for three years, those sorts of things. When I look at, repositioning a business, I'm basically looking for a business that has a good offer in place uh, or has access to a good audience but doesn't have a good offer. Those are my two favorite things to do. So it's it's very, very frequent that somebody has a good offer and they are marketing it in one place. Let's say the most common in, in info businesses is that they've got a good offer and they're doing the joint venture circuit. So they're doing webinars with other people that have audiences which is a good way to start, but not a sustainable model. You can't grow and, and so then I, we do what's called a, a traffic grid, and we'll basically write down the, the different profit centers, which is usually an offer. And so let's say they have uh, three different products that are potential profit centers. And we'll write those down on the left column, and then on the right, uh, in the top column, we'll write all the different places that traffic can come from that. So it might start with strategic relationships and joint ventures, but they're not doing Google search. They're AdWords for search. They're not doing Google Display Network. They're not doing Facebook ads. They're not doing direct mail. They're not doing trade shows. So we'll go through all the different, there's 23 different traffic sources that we go through, and we put up a check mark 
by each one that they're currently doing, and you'll see all these huge gaping holes, which are just opportunity. It's basically, think of those like joint ventures. It's just, if I could just show this offer to all these other places that aren't currently seeing it, then I can probably three to eight X my income Mm -hmm. just because I'm too small right now. Right. So that's, that's to me probably the, the biggest leverage point that I see in the businesses that we go to reposition. Mm, mm, those are some great tips. So just a quick little recap. So first of all, anyone that's building a business or looking to buy or sell a business, some key things is, like you said, bench strength. So more than one person managing the business, which kind of goes back to what you said about partnerships being critical. And that's something I beat that drum all the time on the show. Just that, you you know, you never see, you hardly ever see a rich hermit. You know, it just doesn't happen that you need teams. Yeah. I love how you're singing the song of doing what you're good at. Um, that's a great, great, great tip. So also people want business that have consistent profit for three plus years and you, you're talking about th- uh, three digit year over year growth now is that to buy or sell or is that just a, a, I guess that determines health and consistency and that, that's look for the long term projection as well if you had something that didn't have three digit growth like is, I, I guess from someone who's grow, building the business um, why is that important to strive for the three digit year over year growth is that like just a, like a really good place to be? I mean obviously you want to grow as big and as fast as you can um, in most cases, but I just curious, is that why the three digit year over year growth? It's because if you, if you look at, uh, what your ultimate goal is, I think is to have options. Mm-hmm. And so if you are, so, you know, I mean, it's, it's better to have triple digit growth and double digit. Yeah. Uh, sometimes you can grow yourself to death though. So you have to be careful, mm-hmm. but if you want to have a, a business that's positioned to sell, Mm-hmm. then that's a really good, it's just one of, of you know, about 12, mm-hmm. but it's one thing that people look at. So the more of the things that you can do that will make your business appeal to a possible acquirer, then the more options you've got if a better opportunity comes along or if you find that maybe you don't like the business or you see something coming down the road that's a change maybe regulatorily or, uh, you know, or just a trend that you uh, it allows you to have more flexibility to get rid of the business and sell it to somebody else and do something different. So mm-hmm. that's that's the main thing. The second, you know, the second benefit is it never sucks to have you know 100 percent growth every year, right? <laughs> right, I agree. Um, how do you feel about earnouts? Uh, earnouts are okay. Uh, you know, if I'm a uh, if I am a buyer, uh, I might like it because it gives me protection in that the seller believes that the business is going to continue to deliver on what it's been delivering in the past as a, as a seller. Um, my, my concern would be that I'd really want to have some covenants that the buyer was going to continue to do what we had done before, or was going to maintain traffic spend, ad spend was going to continue to along the path that we were on. Cause at, after you sell, if you're on an earnout, you're pretty much at their mercy uh, to the extent that you haven't contracted in advance for terms to do what a good business owner would do. And frequently the person coming in doesn't know how to do it as well as you do, or they'll have a learning curve of a couple of years and those will be the critical years of your earnout. Yeah. And they're learning kind of on your dime at that point. So I, I don't like it as much uh, without really carefully circumscribing what the terms of the operations are going to be, or if I'm if I've got my team who's going to continue to be in there working under a you know a three year contract, then I'd be more comfortable with the three year earnout than if I was just selling to some company that was going to absorb my company into something else. Right, right, right. That makes perfect sense. Now I like how you talked about when the other thing you look for is a company with a good offer and not a lot uh-huh. of traffic or a good audience. Can you kind of define what a good offer would be? Like, what's how do you know yeah, you got a good offer? Well, I, I only care about an offer that is currently selling well to the existing audience that it's being marketed to, and I want to be sure that I can extend it to other audiences. So if if they are currently selling at retail and I can extend that to other retail areas because most retail operations are localized, so if it's a, you know, a gas station or a chiropractic center or a shooting range or whatever, those are all things that I know if that offer is appealing to the audience that it's in, that I can clone that, potentially franchise it, 
and uh, or license it or just take it myself and have as many stores as I can find similar demographic areas. Mm. So that's a scalable offer in that market. Um, if it is, you know, if you are McDonald's, then I'm not as excited because I don't know where the heck I'm going to expand, right? right? And then you have to you have to be careful. Walmart found out that I think they closed uh, 109 stores or something like that recently. Mm. Um, they were trying to copy the dollar store model, and so Walmart is great. Walmart has grown crazy, right? And they're pretty much everywhere that they can be right now. Um, but is there more? Is there more opportunity to take what they've got to a different market? They thought there was by copying dollar stores, but that model didn't work because the target audience at the dollar store expected Walmart selection and prices in a much, much smaller store that normally charges higher prices. Right. So it failed, right? So I want I want an offer. If I'm online and I see that uh, the audience is currently Facebook, like right now, it's amazing to me how many people, the only source of traffic that they've got is Facebook. And they think Facebook is the be-all, end-all, and that's not a business. Facebook mm. is a single channel out right. of at least 23, right? Mm. So if I see that they've got an offer that's converting on Facebook right now, then I know I've got a good opportunity to take that out to the Google Display Network, to search, and to all the other places that I can find a similar audience. So mm. that's that, – does that make sense? Does that answer it your makes, question? No, it makes perfect sense. It makes – it was a great answer. Um, now, I want to talk about these 23 different traffic sources. So I know sure. some people that they've had issues crossing over into other channels or people that think that their their offer is only channel-specific. Is that the case in a lot of instances, or is that an exception to the rule? Should most offers be able to hop from channel to channel to channel? I mean, because it's just right there. You're like, that's not a business. That's one channel. And I agree wholeheartedly. I've unfortunately seen clients. I had one client. Uh, he was from Mexico netting 20,000 US a month, which is a lot of money when you're a Mexican business owner. Um, And it was that. He was using Facebook ads. And uh, overnight, Facebook just shut him down. Uh, He didn't even touch his ad ad account. It was running for five months, virtually untouched. And then they just shut him down overnight. And, you know, it was crippling for him. He still made it. He's come through. But, you know, there's five months that he just wasn't, you know, trying to scramble and react. Um, So I wanted to ask about that, about the, because you talked about a good audience. Sorry, you were talking about the 23 different channels. So I wanted to ask, is that, how do you determine if it's scalable or not? Or just should? Like, there people are people are people? or Ultimately, um, it, it, you know, you're going to have to test it, right? But it, if, it's, if it's an offer that's successful to a certain niche and you're just basically looking for bigger pockets of that, that niche, niche of existing customers, then I think it's generally going to work. Right, so right. I'm not... I'm not at all afraid when I see something working, uh, especially if it's working like on Facebook, to, mm-hmm. to take it out then to all the other channels that, that it can go to. That's, mm. it's, uh, that's just I, not hard. And I guess to be fair, out of 23 different channels, you might not get all of them, but you'll get more than one, right? And diversity exactly. is stability. So say one is the worst number in business. One key employee, one key client, one key offer, one key channel source. So that definitely yeah. sounds good. Um, so... I guess, what are some of the greatest mistakes you see your clients and other entrepreneurs making? I mean, being running the War Room Mastermind, again, working with Digital Marketer, where you guys have thousands of entrepreneurs and businesses as customers, do you see any key mistakes business owners make again and again? Yeah, uh, that that one is probably the biggest, that they count on one single channel, and if anything happens to it, then they're basically shut down. The same thing applies to depending on one single merchant account. So if yes. you are, <laughs> if you're in business and you've got one merchant provider, then anything happens. And especially if you're doing online, uh, that's a high risk profile for, uh, for the merchant providers. And so it, it, it's very easy for something to happen where they put you on a hundred percent reserve and you basically have no money right. and you've got all your bills and all your ad spend and all that, but you've got no money. So I think, uh, it's really smart to have multiple mids. Uh, mer- multiple uh, merchant IDs to be able to process. And then like what we've done is we basically put them on a rotating gateway. So uh, if one charge comes in, then it gets processed through provider A. The next one that comes in gets done by provider B, the next mm. one by provider C, and then it rotates back to A. Although we've got like, I think we've got nine different uh, providers for that right now. And that happened uh, because we were only using one 
Um, that was about four years ago or so. And um, so they had a, a, a glitch in the system and it took us basically, we were completely shut down for a month. And um, that's, you know, you learn trial by fire on that. Yeah. So that's painful. a big one. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Having, uh, having only one product and thinking that it's going to sell forever is another. Not split testing is a huge one. There's so many opportunities to test and improve your offer. Uh, that's a big one. Uh, not delegating so that you're not able to focus on the bigger picture is another. I think uh, I was talking. Thank you. I was talking to um, somebody the other day that has a search business, and uh, it's a really really big search company. They they place people like they just did the um, uh, HR director for Pinterest. Uh, who's wow. receiving a seven-figure salary, believe it or not, comp package, believe it or not. Or wow. They did the, uh, I think, the chief information officer for, um, the chief information officer for Home Depot, and the package was like $2.2 million or something like that. So I, I there, so we were talking, and um, they asked me, they said, you know, what, what do you see as the, as the most critical parts of a business, you know, as far as having somebody to, um, you know, employee-wise. And then it's really, you need you need a bookkeeper, financial person. You know, that's ultimately going to be your CFO, your chief financial officer. You need somebody to write copy. You need somebody to buy media. You need somebody to manage all your merchant accounts and whatnot. And you need a graphic designer. Those are, you know, kind of the, the critical pieces. Now, you can outsource a lot of that when you're first getting started, and you should because you don't want to, you know, unless you have a ton of money to start with, you don't want to run up a big bill. But uh, there's a lot of uh, a lot of people that don't ever think about growing past that. So I think the challenge, this is going back to that biggest mistake, is a failure to anticipate the need to scale and mm. um, and being happy doing all of the bits of work yourself because you don't want to pay somebody else will ultimately cost you millions of dollars in the long run because you can't do it all. Right. You can't know all oh, that's which leads me to the other one, which is probably the biggest thing that I see hold people back in the beginning, which is not being willing to hire it out, thinking they need to know how everything works. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you, if you know how AdWord works and Facebook ads and how to write copy well and how to work your CRM and everything else, then you know too much and you're not doing it, you know? <laughs> yes. That's a great one. That's a huge one. So just to recap, you're saying you need a CFO slash bookkeeper, someone that will watch the numbers for you. You need a copywriter, media buyer, a graphic designer, and a merchant account manager. Is that what this person said was the key team or you said that's a key team? No, that's what I said was. That's, that's my observation of mm-hmm. in, our, in, in, the, in the online world, that's that's a really good team to scale up pretty significantly with. Mm, 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 mm. What about web technology and web pages and that sort of stuff? I guess that's in there too. Yeah, it, it, it's really so simple right now with things like lead pages and click funnels to right. you know to, to do that stuff and not have to have a, a technical person. You can outsource that for next to nothing. You know, on Fiverr and uh, and companies uh, and you know things like that. So I just don't say it's so simple. I mean. If you can drag and drop, you can build a funnel now. Yep. Yeah, 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 which is huge because not even that long ago, it was a very, very, very expensive endeavor to, to get done and a ton of technical nightmares. So a couple of you talking about the not, uh, what was it, the biggest mistakes, not delegating. So so you said so they can focus on the bigger picture. What is the bigger picture? I think the bigger picture is you, you have to know what you want to start with and where you want to go. And so if, and then you reverse engineer your way there. Everyone I know who is successful does two things. One is they start with the end in mind and then reverse engineer how they're going to get there. And that is without exception. If you want to make $10,000 a month or $10 million a month, it's the same process. Here's where I want to go. Now, what do I have to accomplish by when to get there? And you just break it all down, and then that tells you. You need you know, you need to sell, if your product is going to be priced at X, then you need to sell whatever your goal is divided by X number of units per month. And to sell that many units per month, you need to know what your conversion rate is and then divide that to figure out how many leads you need and so on and so forth, which ultimately takes you back to ad spend. So 
if you're and and I would also say while it's wonderful and um, and a true blessing to get free organic traffic from SEO, that also is not a business model. So mm. you've got to spend money to buy paid media to basically to advertise to get business. That's that's the the big overarching picture there. And then the second thing is you have to take time to just think about what you want to accomplish and where you want to be. You need to, you know, spend 15, 20 minutes a day even. I try to spend an hour uh, doing nothing but thinking about how are you going to improve your personal life, your physical life, your emotional life, your business life, you know, where are you going to get more traffic? What deals are you going to do? Are you happy with the business you're in? What could you be doing differently? Who can help you get there faster? What's the best way to collapse time? Um, those are the the big thinking decisions that most people, I think, don't don't take time to do, but everyone I know who's successful does. So if you can do those two things, you start with the end in mind, reverse engineer your way so you know exactly what needs to happen, then you know if you're on track or not, right? If you're, you know, I need to have, I need to spend, you know, $100 a day to get this many leads to make my $10,000 a month, then... I I'm I know if I'm not doing that I'm not on track and I can fix it. Mm. If I don't know what I need down to that granularity, then I don't know when I'm off track and it's easy for me to stay off track for so long that I don't ever get to my goal. Yep. And then the second thing is if I'm not ever thinking about how do I do it better, faster, stronger, smarter, then I'm always going to be stuck with the, you know, with where I was at the time that I came up with my end goal in the first place. So those are those are big deals, I think. Yeah, those are great, 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 great tips. I love that. Um, how about managing a team or people or delegating? Do you have any tips for that? Because you're right. A lot of people are afraid to delegate, and even when they do delegate, they don't necessarily know how to do it well. Um, they either overwhelm people or they don't, you know, they don't push people hard enough. Do you, do you have any input on that? I do. So I do not delegate well, generally. Like, I... I am a person who I'm kind of a pain in the butt perfectionist. So I want things done right. And I am uh, one of those people who doesn't follow my own advice and does know how to do almost all of the stuff that I said you need to get other people to do because I'm fascinated by it. Right. Right. So, so I know that, I know that about myself and therefore I have delegated delegating. So when I talked (laughs) about getting, when I talked about getting partners that are good at the things you're not, I have a partner who is fantastic at delegating, and that way I don't get stuck being the bottleneck, right? So so even if you're not a good delegator, you can own that and say, that's cool, I'm just not a good delegator. I'm going to find somebody that is who's going to handle that team part of things mm-hmm. and then problem solve, right? Mm-hmm. With res- and, and then with respect to the general concept of delegating, the problem that I think a lot of people have who are uh, who are perfectionisty uh, is that it's not going to be done the way you want to do it or as well as you want to do it, right. and therefore you'd rather just do it yourself because then it's going to be done right the first time and done the way you want. And you just have to get past that and accept that it's not going to be done exactly like you'll do it, and it's probably not going to be done as well as you would do it, and that's okay as long as it's good enough to meet the bar of acceptability for the customer. And I'm not saying, I'm not advocating don't do things well and don't do the best job you can. I'm just saying you literally can't yet clone yourself. Mm-hmm. So knowing that that's a limitation will ultimately not serve your customers as well if you try to do everything perfectly and, and you can't. Mm-hmm. Then if you will get some other people who can fill in the gaps and hopefully learn to do it better, but uh, but initially probably won't. You just have to accept there's that learning curve of uh, of delegation with the people that you're delegating tasks to that it's not going to be as good as you are. And you have to invest that time in either training them or getting somebody else to train them up to speed, and you've got to be okay with as long as you're delivering what you promised and hopefully a little more that it, it it's that's good enough. Hmm. That's so well said. You know, it reminds me when I was early in my path of entrepreneurship, I had the good fortune to meet a guy that was a multimillionaire 
And after I'm meeting him, I was at a conference and, you know, the guru's on the stage, you know, if you want to be broke, hang out with nine broke people. And I was like, forget that. I'm going to hang out with nine millionaires. So I met this guy and he just kind of, he found me. Um, and he said something to me, he said, Daryl, and this was, I was having an issue delegating. He said, Daryl, everyone's going to be a beta version of you and you just have to accept it. And that's why it's called human resources because it's like a garden and you grow people and then you've got these great assets, these great resources. You've got this apple tree, you know, you can go to and get apples from, you know, and he's like, people are like that. If you're willing to pay them what they're worth or you're willing to train and invest in them. So I think that really speaks to kind of the message you were just saying. And I think that's a really powerful message that we can all hear again and again. In fact, there's been so much great stuff in here. People listen to this. If you do not have a paper and pen, you may want to restart the call and come through this because I've got like two pages of notes already and we're, you know, we're, we're just getting into the meat and potatoes here. So, um, that's huge. That's really huge. That's a great, great, great tip. Um, <laughs> again, it comes back to partnerships are critical and, um, you know, whatever you don't like to do, you won't do, or you won't do well. So, you know, uh, 10% of a big, of a lot is a lot more than a hundred percent of nothing. So I think those exactly. are all really great points. Um, so do you have any personal habits that you feel have helped you on your path to success, like daily rituals or routines or lifestyle things or something that you see among all the high achievers and all the different mastermind groups and courses and programs that you've been, or even clients that you've worked with? Yeah, I think the thinking, the taking time to think every day is a big, big deal. I think um, being physically active is a big deal. Having some time that you take away from work and devote to personal is a big deal. The biggest challenge I see, especially with online people, is um, actually it's with online and offline. The biggest challenge I see with online people is a, a lack of attention to getting out from behind the computer. Mm. So the habit would be most of the people I know who are very successful online do not spend most of their time behind the computer. They spend most of their time working on relationships because those are the things that will enable them to get farther faster. And um, even in retail, the people who I see who are the most successful franchisees and people I see that are most successful mom and pop store owners, they're not just behind the register or behind the counter the whole time. They're out in the community talking to people, out in their, uh, their group of people, learning things. They're all masterminding. They all have mentors. They all model other successful people. That modeling, masterminding, and mentoring, are, I think, are just really, really critical. All three of those, those M's. Mm. Sorry, I'm I'm writing that down. Mold, modeling, masterminding, mentoring. I like that. And and that is also in uh, in reverse. So you may have a mentor, but if you're not mentoring someone, if you don't have a mentee, then you're not you're not learning as, uh, as they say in Zen with a beginner's mind. Mm. I think that, that having someone who doesn't already know how everything is supposed to be done and working with them is every bit as educational as working with someone who is farther along the path than you want to be. So I agree with always be the dumbest guy in the room, but I also think that you get a lot out of having people who maybe aren't as smart as you or in terms of knowledge and experience and skills in a particular area because they'll bring fresh insights that you won't see and they'll ask why when you have ceased to ask why. Mm. So it causes you to say, when you're trying to explain something to somebody and it doesn't make sense to you when you're explaining it because that's just how you've been doing it, that's pretty educational. That's huge. That's very educational. That's, that's a great... So I think having that... Yeah, I think having that on both sides is really important. Being be a mentor, but be a mentee. You know, be part of a mastermind, but also host a mastermind. You know, be a person who models other people's stuff, but then share models with other people so that you can help them along the way. And uh, that that. Uh, High tide rises all ships, right? Mm. No, I love that. And I agree, too. Once upon a time, I had a martial arts school. And um, uh, no, well, I don't mind patting my own back. We were known for a couple of students that we had that went from zero to bringing home provincial gold medals um, in, you know, in less than a year, which is commendable, at least in our, in our neighborhood. And I think part of it was because we really did that. We really encouraged people to coach and work together with each other for exactly what you said. Because we would say, if you came to class and we show you a technique and you practice it five, ten 
10 times here, whatever, you go home, that's fine. But if you practice it five, 10 times and you see someone who's struggling with it, you look at what they're doing, you think about what they're doing wrong and what the right model is. Like you're just investing more hours in it. You know, they say it takes seven, seven touches to like remember something. Well, there's doing it, you're seeing it for yourself and then there's doing it for yourself. And then there's watching someone else doing it and recognizing that what's right and not right. And then there's coaching them on doing it better and help, you know what I mean? And helping break it down. And then you might realize there's a simpler way to do it. Like it just, it gets you more involved in the material hands down. And like you said, you have to understand it. If you're teaching it or trying to press it on and you're kind of confused, you're like, wait, I'm missing something. You know, that means that you're not executing. It's uh, there's a great quote. We don't rise to the level of our expectations. We fall to the level of our training. And I think, right. Yeah, and I think what you just said is is perfect for that because you might learn this stuff and have expectations to, oh, wow, if I do this, 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 I'll get here. But then when you start training it with yourself and with another person, you start kind of seeing where things are really at, um, you know, when you start trying to convey the message in that. And then you say it again, and then you look at what you're doing, and you're like, I'm not really doing what I just told them to do, am I? And it kind of kicks you into gear. So I think that's a great – I think those are great, the, the modeling, masterminding, mentoring. I mean, modeling, there's a lot of people – I get frustrated when sometimes uh, – uh, people message and they're like, you know, they just, they're, what's the right way to say this, but they just don't know, like they're stuck. They don't know where to start or what to do. And it's just, just, just pick a plat, just pick a path. Like there's so many paths. There's so many people out there. Just watch what your competitors do or go see someone else or look at a different industry and just model what they do and at least get some sort of skeleton up and going. And like, you know, once you do it 10 times or 20 times or 50 times, you know, you'll probably, you'll be better. So than the first time you did it. So there's, there's a lot to be said for just hours invested. Um, yeah, so. absolutely. And then another habit that I see, successful people doing uh, consistently is they give first without any expectation of what's going to come. And, and that'll like, generally that's a good thing to do specifically when you're looking at working with somebody who's new, I think that before you get to contracts and who gets what and who, who shares this and all that, it's really good to just get to know them before you get into a deal be sure that you like them. One thing you learn as an attorney is people don't sue people they like, so you want to be sure you like them and they like you. If you have anything about it, if you're like, oh, man, I'm going to do this deal with them, but, man, God, I just hate the way that they do blah, 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 mm-hmm. right? Then don't do the deal. Just walk away. It's, it's a mistake. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's part A. And then part B is give, like, if you've got somebody and you say, you know, if they did this and this different, they would make 100000 more dollars a year right? Uh-huh. Then tell them if they just knew this guy or this, this uh, gal, then they would make a hundred thousand dollars more a year. Then make the introduction and don't uh-huh. expect anything for it. Don't try to be a person who middles deals because those people are just annoying, right? Uh-huh. Even though they bring value, uh-huh. it's annoying because all they had to do was say, Hey, you should meet such and such. If you just consistently be the person who's making the connections and who's adding the value, then it comes back tenfold because that person will be looking for an opportunity to get even with you by helping you, right? Mm -hmm. They'll be looking for an opportunity to get even with you in your social bank account by introducing you to the person who can add $200,000 to your business. Mm -hmm. And man, I just, I I couldn't stress that enough. It's so um, disappointing when you're talking to somebody and they're like, Oh, I know such and such could help you. And I'll introduce you, you know, I'd want to be in for like 10% of that. Come on, you either add value or you don't. Now, there's nothing wrong with if you're, if you say, I can make this introduction. um, And I think that some facilitation needs to happen because this, 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 and this, and we need to position this here. And then there's some other people too. Well, then that becomes your being a value adder to the deal yourself. Hmm. And if you can put yourself in that position instead of just being the middle then I think you're in a so much better place for being liked and for having people want to help you and, and give you value back. Mm, that's a great tip. Well, again, it kind of comes back to deal just doing business fairly with people that there's more, there's more, I mean, obviously in business, we keep track with money. That's how we keep score. But there, in reality, there's more than just money, right? There's more than just yep, money. Yep. At it. I mean, I've met happy millionaires and I've met miserable millionaires. I've been rich and I've been poor. And I have to admit, yep. I love being able to buy what I want, when I want, where I want, and, you know, it's a lot funner. Um, but that being said, there's a lot more to life than just money. And so it just sounds like you're, you know, like you kind of are having that long term, like, 
when I'm 60, 80, you know, 100 and whatever, um, or past and people are at my funerals talking about me, what are they going to say? And I think that's really, really, really important because if you're just here to suck, you know, blood from everyone around you, you're a parasite and you're, you know, you're not, it's not sustainable. It's not, you're going to kill off everyone around you. People are going to stay away. And at some point it really is going to bite you in the butt. So, you know, it's, it, none of this stuff is get rich quick stuff. None of it is fluff. It's just really practical, sensible, you know, how to do good business, how to grow a good business, how to scale, how to work with people, how to set yourself up for success and avoid f- potential failures. Um, so it's really good advice. Now, yeah, you- I, I think if you were, if you were truly going to be the most evil manipulative person that you could be solely out for your interests, the wonderful thing about that is that if that's the kind of person you wanted to be, then you would give value without expectation. You would do good things for other people. You do all the things we're talking about because you know what? It's not when you're 60 or 80. It's tomorrow that will that will yield results and long-term results so much faster and more consistently than anything else that, that it's kind of cool that the most manipulative thing you can do is help other people do better. <laughs> right. True. Fair enough. And very well said. Now, Roland, what are some of your projections into the future? What do you think are some future trends for your industry, at least as with digital marketers involved, which is obviously with digital marketing? What do you see as any future trends? You just mentioned how with things like lead pages and click funnels and unbounce and all these other tools, optimized press, you know, they take a lot of the guesswork out of web building um, and funnel building. Do you see any other big trends coming in the near future? Yeah, definitely. I, I, I see what what we can see right now is that 60% or more of our traffic is from mobile mm. so if you are not, if you're not mobile friendly then you're really going to suffer increasingly uh large losses of traffic mm. and certainly conversions as more and more people buy on mobile we're seeing um we're seeing a lot more transactions on mobile uh, mm. And it's it's about fifty percent of our transactions now are coming from mobile. Wow! So if I talk with uh, and I, I talk pretty regularly with with other folks at other you know other businesses across the board, and from Target and Sears and Petco to uh, small little online businesses, anyone who is really really thinking about the you know the coming year. Uh, should be definitely thinking about mobile first, meaning that they're designing everything to be at least responsive. They're abandoning abandoning M. sites, those crappy mobile horrible experiences that are designed just for mobile, and they're providing the same functionality on mobile that they are for their desktop to the extent that they can, and they're eliminating consciously things that are available on their desktop that just don't work on mobile. Mm. So that's, that's, a, that's a biggie, and that goes, uh, that goes across every business that I can think of. The second big trend is that you'll see, uh, you're seeing it now, you'll really, really see it, I think, in 2017, 2018, is messengers, um, Facebook Messenger, WhatsApp, uh Line six, all, all of those, uh, all of those large messaging apps have hundreds of millions of users, uh, or in the case of Messenger, I think a billion. And that is where things are going to basically eliminate the, eliminate a lot of the apps that you see right now as freestanding apps and subsume them into, uh, Messenger apps that are built on top of that platform so that you're able to interact uh, without a separate user interface by just saying, I'd like to transfer $10,000 from my savings to my checking. I'd like to order uh, mm. a pound of hamburger and a set of taco shells and stuff like that. That that You're already seeing apps that do that within those apps and the developer kit for Messenger and, uh, and the other apps that are out there, Messenger apps, uh, are becoming more and more available and, and easier to program for. So you'll definitely see that happening. It's shocking how many people use messaging apps. And uh, so that's a big deal. Personalization is a huge, huge deal, meaning that to deliver a one-on-one experience based on the behavior and likely desired content for people who are visiting your sites and your apps uh, is is already in place, and, and we're doing that right now. That's one of our big initiatives for 2016, 
is we want to deliver a separate web page that's customized for every single visitor to any of our sites based on their behavior on our sites or that's predicted based on their demographic analysis and the source of where they're coming from uh, to be something that they'll be the most interested in. And then the offers also that they see are optimized individually to them. So we use, we're, we've just onboarded with, uh, with a company that provides predictive, adaptive learning, machine learning uh, intelligence for email. So let's say that I open my emails at 5 in the morning every day, and you are most likely to open yours at 1 p.m., and somebody else is most likely to open theirs at 6 well, then we'll now deliver your email at a different time than mine and a different time than theirs based on when you're most likely to open it. We will deliver you the offer in the email that is different based on what you've already purchased and what you're most likely to need right now, and we'll deliver it with a subject line that you, based on your opening history, are most likely to open, which will be different from mine or the other person. And that level of personalization will give a lot of businesses a tremendous advantage over the people that are just doing spray and pray email. Right. Huge, huge advantage, huge advantage. I mean, that's ultimately marketing is salesmanship multiplied, right? I always say that the history and forgive me, I want to respect your time, but for the sake of this has been such a great call. I always try to explain people how I feel marketing developed where, um, you know, where it started off in the back in the day, all business owners were really, or, you know, just salesmen and you'd be going town to town or door to door selling your wares. And that one day there was some really ambitious guy that was trying to get to more doors. Maybe he's got a baby on the way or the wife is unhappy, wants a vacation or a bigger house. He's trying to figure out how can I knock on more doors in a day? And he gets the idea that every time I go to a new door, I go through the same spiel. Maybe if I jot it down on a piece of paper, I can have a boy run ahead of me, deliver these. And when I come along, at least they're kind of familiarized with it. And he tries it out and finds some of the kids are coming back with money. Um, and some kids are coming back with questions. So he updates the letter a few times and now you've got the sales letter, which is kind of the original advertising original marketing piece and now he's able to get to hundreds of thousands of doors in a day just by delivering the letters versus having to knock on them personally but if you could obviously nothing converts as well as a face-to-face kneecap to kneecap conversation and then everything else just as a regression from that you know once you get into just the phone or just a webinar to just a you know just a vsl to just a just a sales letter so if you can adapt like you would in person i mean that's that's almost ai i mean that's that's creating an intelligent computer interface that customizes how it responds to you, whether you're in a good mood or a bad mood, or, you know, you like cats or you like dogs. I mean, that's huge. That's really huge. That's, that's leverage salesmanship to the nth degree, um, which is phenomenal. It really is. Yeah, it really is. And then, and then the other, probably the other main one I would say would be if you, if you look at the evolution of SEO um, right now, if you Google survival, just the word survival, on uh, um, on an iOS on a, on an Android or iOS system, so on a tablet or an iPhone or an Android phone, then the results are different than they are on the desktop. They've recently changed. So basically, the first thing you should see uh, is a Google answer, which is basically based on a on a rich snippet. It's going to either be a definition that they've taken from a site that they'll provide a link to a site for, or it'll be just something that's coming straight from the knowledge graph. And then under that will be most likely six apps. So six apps on a mobile device are going to show up under an answer before you even get to the organic result, Mm. which are way, way, way down the page as far as in terms of scroll, right? So if you're thinking about uh, where you want to get additional traffic and you're looking and you're at the point where you've got your paid kind of maxed out and you're looking at organic, then working in the structured markup language that allows you to do rich snippets to get into those Google answers, which puts you at spot zero, not spot one, um, is a big deal. Like that's, that's an initiative for us. And then having, having an app so that on mobile devices, you have the ability to project, uh, out for the, um, so that you have the ability to, uh, to reach out and sniff, is it a mobile device? Do they have the app installed? If they have the app installed, can I pop a thing that says, hey, look for us on the app so that you'll come up first. You'll come up higher in the search result if you have the app already installed, and you'll be in one of those six spots now. There's like that six-pack 
of app, you know, six pack mm-hmm. apps. That's, mm-hmm. I guess that's a program I should come out with. And, um, <laughs> and, uh, then, you know, if you're not though, if you don't have that app and you're not optimized with that, with structured markup and you're not optimized in the app store or app discovery, then you're going to be way, way, way down the page and probably not clicked uh, much at all. So that's mm. a, that's another big thing that I see trend wise coming that we, all of our properties now have apps that are in development and, um, and all of them are being moved over to AMP friendly pages that are structured, that have structured markup language so that you can get, um, into the knowledge graph and into the rich snippet. That's awesome. And that's huge. That's so huge. The predictive technology, the personalization of search, depending on what a, a device you're on. Google just, I just saw an article recently where Google has, uh, released an official statement that yes they've confirmed they have a quant a functional quantum computer and that is huge in terms of trying to determine what subject lines people would prefer what they want to see when they do a search i mean all this stuff is huge 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 so it sounds like um being on the cutting edge of things again having mobile stuff for mobile people having desktop stuff for desktop people and being able to sell in both mediums uh is more critical than ever and it's only going to get more difficult i guess as the t- as the technology advances um which for which for people that stay up you know on it is is definitely cool so if you've got somebody who enjoys staying up on that kind of stuff then they're a great partner right if you don't like that then then it's not not good for you to be the guy or girl that's doing that so yeah i think i think if you look at um at google's i think you were talking about rank brain and rank brain is part of their overall algorithm, which is now referred to as Hummingbird. And so Hummingbird's got in it rank brain. It's got, uh, it's got the pandas and penguin and mobile Geddon and all kinds of other stuff. And if you are trying to be up on that all the time and you're the only person that's doing that and you're trying to run your business, it's going to be really hard. So like what we've done is we, we have hired out that function to, an SEO expert, a high-level SEO expert. That person, I think I talked with you about this yesterday. The, mm. the high-level high SEO expert would never work for us because that person's able to make so much money doing what they know how to do, and they consult with Target and all these other people. But they're consulting. They've helped us find a person that they are teaching and giving the strategy to. That mm. person is hired by us as an employee, mm. and that employee then is able to do the things that that person needs. So now we're effectively getting that person's brain transferred to this person who, who is able to do, be the doer. And then we've done that with social media. We've done that with email. We've done that in several places where we couldn't get enough money. We, we're not going to pay that 2.2 million to that person to be our solo, but we can rent a small sliver of their brain power, which is all we need to know the things that we need to do strategically. And then we have the actual, the kind of the grunt work done by somebody else. And that way we're able to leverage their knowledge into us without having to pay them a huge salary. Mm. That's a big win for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. What's a, whether you do it or someone else does it, that thing can't not get done. And again, we go yep. back to if you treat your business like a hobby, it'll pay you like a hobby. If you treat your business like a business, it will pay you as a business. And it definitely sounds like you guys are taking this as serious business. And it shows. I mean, obviously, Digital Marketer is huge, huge presence, grow, ever-growing, setting industry standards, pumping out. I love Orion pumps out at every TNC conference. There's new vocab and vernacular being put into the marketplace. I mean, that's just really marketing. That's marketing prowess at its best. So um, now, again, to, to kind of talk about that perfect segue – now, people here listening to this, they might be excited. Obviously, there's a ton of great content. This call might take a couple of listens to just to get it all out. But you are representative of a digital marketer. You guys have mastermind programs. I was in the war room myself for a time. Uh, you also have certification program stuff. If people are loving this and they want to check things out and they want to learn more and they want to get involved, where would you recommend that they go? Well, Digital Marketer is, is our basically our training and certification company. The, the Digital Marketer blog, which is free, mm. has a ridiculous amount of, uh, I think, content. great, great content. All of the other major marketers that uh, that you and I know and talk to uh, look at it and, and constantly tell us how wonderful it is because it's just great. And I can say that because I'm not the person that does that. I got mm. two articles on there. <laughs> but uh, our team is really, really good about going out and getting uh, fantastic experts to, to write. Uh, if you want to get a team and you want to delegate 
a lot of things like email or traffic or content creation uh, or even customer acquisition to somebody else, then we have certifications and trainings that allow you to get somebody to do that. And I'll tell you, you know, our secret is we just go out and hire paid interns for next to nothing. They're like 10 bucks an hour, 12 bucks an hour. And we bring them in, we put them through our certification programs, and then we give them a little responsibility and the ones that aren't good go out and the ones that are good rise up through the ranks. Molly at Digital Marketer came in as an intern. Uh, Amber, who's our chief marketing officer over at uh, Native Commerce, came in as an intern. Karen, who's the CEO over at, uh, at Native Commerce, she came in as a project manager. So having those people be homegrown and using the Digital Marketer certification suite to train them for us, we offer that because we created it for ourselves. We just mm. figured that it was good to monetize it by sharing it with other people. Mm, 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 mm. That's huge. So to get that, they go to digitalmarketer.com. Check that Correct. out. Um, what if anyone's interested in the mastermind group and the mastermind program? Obviously having access to you and Ryan and Perry and everyone else you guys invite, Frank. Um, obviously that's huge value in that. Is there somewhere some people can go if they're interested in that in particular? There is, I believe it's uh, warroommastermind.com, but you've, you've caught me without uh, being absolutely sure of that. So let me, let me frantically type it in and see if that's actually where it is. <laughs> I'm doing the same thing myself. So enter four digit passcode here. Oh, I don't know what that is. Yep. That's it. Any four digits will get you in. Oh, okay. Any four digits gets that's, you in. That's Damn, our sophisticated programming there. <laughs> Look at that. Roland Frazier. Hey, that's you. Perry Belcher, Ryan Dice, Frank Hurd, Richard Linder. There we go. Perfect. So there you go. So again, warroommastermind.com or digitalmarketer.com uh, if you'd like more information. Uh, Roland, this has been such an honor and a pleasure. I love chatting with you every time I get a chance. Is there anything I should have asked you that I didn't ask you? I don't think so. I think you did a fantastic job, and thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the the opportunity to chat with you. Thank you. It's been an honor and a pleasure. You've reached the end of our interview. Now, first, let me thank you for listening. I appreciate and respect you more than you'll ever know. And now I'd like to ask you a couple of questions. First, what three lessons did you just learn? What three aha moments just jumped out at you? Second, what can you implement for yourself and your business in the next 24 hours? Third, what can you give to someone else to help you with or give them to just do it for you? Whatever it is, remember taking action is the secret sauce to results. Now, if you think this interview would be helpful for a friend, please give them a link to it. It'll help them and it'll help me too. I'd also like to invite you to help me find out more about the challenges you're facing, your dreams, your goals, and how I can help you overcome what's holding you back. We both do better when we know better. And your success is my success. So please reach out and interact. You can visit our website, bestbusinesscoach.ca for Canada or California, where I'm from and where I'm living. You're welcome to also try out one of our paid programs. You can find us on YouTube, Facebook, and pretty much every other social media channel you can think of. You should also subscribe to the podcast. And if you're enjoying them, please leave us a nice review. It really helps. That's all for now. Once again, thank you. Take care of yourself. And remember, the world needs the best business you can build. And I believe in you.